Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We continue our series in the book of Colossians, so if you'll be finding that, we are in some great verses again this morning, chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, just three verses again because there is so much here in these three verses. Who's in control? That's what we want to know sometimes in various situations. If you go to a a retail store or perhaps a restaurant and things are not going the way that you think they ought to go. Sometimes you ask the person that you are dealing with, who's in control around here? I want the manager because we believe that the manager at least has the authority to solve our problems and get us what we want. The same is true when a tragedy strikes, when there's all these medical personnel rushing to the scene. There's always got to be one person in control, one person who is calling the shots, telling everybody else what they need to do and where they need to go. In our homes, who's in control? Well, it's the parents, isn't it? Well, on paper, it should be. But of course, sadly, we know sometimes it is the exact opposite. At work, we tend to know who's in control. We know that the boss says what we are to do, and if we want to keep our jobs, we are to do it. So it is clear that our boss at work, whoever he or she is, is definitely in control. And we'll actually be talking next week about those two settings, that both work and home, because Paul moves to the the family dynamic in the verses that follow what we are dealing with here. In our personal lives, we know the answer to that question. Who's in control of my life? The answer, me. At least that's what we would like to think. There are different personality types, of course, and some of those personality types are more interested in control. In fact, sometimes we say, so-and-so is a control freak. They've just got to have everything their way and under their control. It's why children sometimes say, I can't wait to become an adult. Because when I become an adult, I can do whatever I want to do. And we sort of chuckle at that, realizing that we as adults don't get to do whatever we want to do. It just doesn't work that way. But when things are calm in our life, we have the illusion that we are in control. And then sometimes things are not so calm, and we use the phrase, my life is spinning out of control. I'm not a huge fan of flying. I'm going to do it again for the first time in two years next week, but I'm not a big fan. I get anxious and I have to read a book or occupy my mind so I don't think about what's going on. And I think the reason I don't like flying is because I know I'm not in control. It smacks me in the face with the fact that there is absolutely nothing I can do from point A to point B. Every single thing is out of my control. Now, I don't mean by that that I tend to think that I know more about how to fly a plane than the pilots do. I'm not saying that at all. I simply realize that I'm having to trust someone I don't know, multiple people I don't know, to get me to where I want to go. That's why I think when someone says to me, have safe travels, I want to say back to them, it's out of my hands. 
I mean, I, there's nothing I can do. I do hope I have safe travels, but it's not up to me. It is out of my control. The truth is, most of our lives is, in fact, out of our control. We don't like to think about that, but it is the fact. We are not in control of our lives, but we are grateful that God is, that God is in control of all things, which includes every aspect of our lives. And being in control of our lives as believers, God has placed some controls in our lives. And in these three verses this morning, we're going to see three controls that God has placed there. Three controls for the life of the believer that is for our good. Who's in charge? Well, God is. And in these verses, God says what ought to guide and control our lives. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. It's a pretty simple outline this morning, and I think you can see that each one goes with each one of the verses. And so first of all, we notice here that we are controlled by the peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ control you or rule you, he says here. Let it rule in your heart. Let it rule in the church. This, of course, refers to the peace that comes from Christ, the peace that God grants us on the basis of his redemptive work. You know, of course, that the Bible tells us that Christ himself is our peace. We sing at Christmas time about the Prince of Peace. It is through the person of Christ that believers have been reconciled to God. I, I've talked to you before about the fact that prior to salvation, we were at enmity with God. We were against God, even though we don't really recognize it in those terms. We were under the wrath of God, but all of this has been replaced in salvation, and now we have the peace of God ruling in our hearts. And as a result, as his children, we are then called to live at peace within the body of Christ and with with one another. If God has granted us peace with him in spite of our sins, then we are to live at peace with one another. Now I refer you back, and I trust you still have your Bibles open, and we'll keep them open till the end, but I refer you back to verse 13 that we looked at last week, where Paul says very clearly, if one of you has a complaint against another, and we acknowledge that he's, he's saying there that there are going to be difficulties within the body of Christ. But that ought not to be the norm. Instead, the norm ought to be that peace is the controlling influence in the life of the church. We are called together, he says, in one body. And therefore, it's imperative that we live together in harmony. Now, this does not mean that we agree on everything. It does not mean that we don't have the right to express our opinions and even disagree about certain things in life or in the church. What it does mean is that in the midst of a chaotic world, the church is to be characterized by the peace of Christ. The Bible said it is this kind of peace that surpasses all understanding. 
It is not a natural peace known to the ways of man. It is a peace given to us by God that is in that sense supernatural, and it ought to be evidenced in how we interact with one another even when there are difficulties. And again, this doesn't negate the fact that there are are difficulties. There will be. But in those difficulties, whether it's in the church or it's in the trials of life, the peace of Christ is to rule even there so that people can see that God is at work among us. But sadly, that is often not the case. Churches facing a myriad of problems merely become uh, individuals within the church who are fighting with one another, as we talked about last week, reacting the same way in many ways that the people outside of the church react, when in fact we ought to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. As far as it is possible with us, the Bible says. That's acknowledging that it's not always possible. That means it takes two people to have peace. For you and I to have peace with one another, we both have to work at it. But it's my responsibility as a Christian to do all that I possibly can toward that end. That same responsibility falls on you. And if we both do that, then we are going to have peace. The peace which comes from Christ ruling in our hearts. This word rule means an arbitrator or an umpire. Now, most of us have been to sporting events. We know that we want our team to win, and because we want our team to win, when we lose, we have to find excuses, right? It's not our team's fault, unless it's one guy that we don't really like, or the coach that we don't really like. So a lot of times, who do we blame when we lose? We blame the referee, the umpire. They made a bad call. Now, replay has cut down on this in football at least, but not so in other sports. I've been to several basketball games over the years at UT, and it just is humorous to me that when a call is made against UT, the referee is the most idiotic man in the building. I mean, people shout, they yell, but then he makes a call on UT's behalf, and we all clap and applaud. He's suddenly a hero because he saw the right thing. And so one time he's a villain and the other time he's a hero. What we don't often think about but instinctively know is in that moment when 20,000 fans are screaming in the arena, whether it's a good call or a bad call, guess what? The only person's call that matters is that referee. It doesn't matter what the 20,000 people think. The one who blew the whistle makes the call He's the arbiter, he's the judge, he is the umpire, he's the one in control. And that's the word Paul is using here to say, let the peace of Christ rule. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your life. This ought to be the attitude or the the, uh, actions of all believers. God has given us peace with himself, and this peace ought to rule in our hearts and therefore rule in our relationships. So the first thing that is to control our lives is the peace of Christ. Secondly, we notice in the next verse, verse 16, that we are to be controlled by the word of Christ. Verse 16, a wonderful verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it dwell within us. Now, traditionally, this has been interpreted as as an individual verse. And it certainly has an application there. Let the word of Christ dwell within me. 
which leads us to think that we need to read the Bible and study the Bible and ultimately apply the Bible to our lives. And certainly that is the case. There is an application here for that as there is elsewhere in the Bible. And you know that I talk about this probably more so than I should. And that is that we must read the Bible, we must study the Bible, we must know what the Bible says. Sometimes when I do a funeral, I ask for the, the Bible of the deceased. I want to be able to look through that Bible and maybe come up with a verse that, that they loved, maybe something written in the front that says what their favorite passage was. And when I get those Bibles, I love it if they're falling apart. And if there's all kinds of underlined stuff everywhere, because that tells me they read the Bible, they were studying the Bible. In contrast to that, and I've told you this before, but I well remember a young lady I had in my Sunday school class when I taught Sunday school when I was in seminary who refused to bring a Bible to church. And so I asked her one day, how come you never bring a Bible? And she said, because I have a Bible that's by my bedside in the box. I keep it in the box by my bed because I don't want it to get messed up. Well, a messed up Bible is a sign that the life might not be messed up. You can always buy another Bible. So read your Bibles, underline your Bibles, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. But the fact of the matter is, again, Paul is writing here to the church. This is not primarily an individual verse, though it certainly applies there. He's talking to the church. In fact, the word you there, let the word of Christ dwell within you. That word is plural. It doesn't come across in the English. And so we might translate it like this. Let the word of Christ dwell among you. That is among the body of Christ, among the believers. As a community of believers, we gather together and the word of God is to control what we do in the body of Christ. And that is why we preach through a passage of Scripture every Sunday morning rather than doing topical messages. That is why when we gather at other times, be it Sunday school or, or other things where the Bible is the center of the, the conversation, we make sure we open the Word and we strive to study it. Everything in the church ought to revolve around this. Now, if you were with us Wednesday night, you know we started our summer series, and we're doing something called the tent poles of the church this summer, the three tent poles that, that hold the church up, and we're saying that those are worship, evangelism, and discipleship, but all of those things revolve around the Word of God. We worship according to the Word, we disciple one another in the Word, we evangelize because of the Word, so all of those things come under the Word of God. I well remember many years ago a friend of mine who is not a believer, though he has a religious background, so he knows some things about the church, but, but he asked me one time, he said, do you preach the scriptures or life issues? And I said, well, I do both. I preach the scriptures because I believe the scriptures uh, speak to life issues. And he said this to me in response, he said, well, I think we can agree that the scriptures have been handed down by men for centuries and have been corrupted so that we don't know what is really the word of God and what is not. And I said, no, I don't think we can agree on that. And I went on to explain how all of the Bible was the inspired word of God or is the inspired word of God. And it is historically the most well-authenticated piece of literature in history. And the brief conversation reminded me again that not everyone believes as we do in the authority, inspiration, and inerrancy of the word of God. So just because we gather and we, we throw those words out and those are catchphrases for conservative Christianity, we are reminded that there are a lot of people in our world 
many in our own families who do not believe the Bible as we believe the Bible. Years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention was waffling on this. This is back in the 70s, the 80s. And we had a takeover of the convention to bring us back to these key truths of the authority, inspiration, and inerrancy of the Scripture. And we're still there. We still all believe in that. But we have to be very careful that while professing our belief in those things, we can, in fact, deny it by the way we live our lives. And by the way, we fail to put into practice what the Bible says. Again, whether that's individually or whether it's in the corporate body of the church. Professing a love for Scripture is not enough. We must practice the Scriptures by being obedient to the commands of Christ. Again, individually and corporately. And so even as I ask Wednesday night, whose responsibility is this? Whose responsibility is it to worship, evangelize, and disciple? And we came to the conclusion that it is the responsibility of all of us to do all three things. Likewise, I ask now, whose responsibility is it when we talk about the Word of God and, and making sure it dwells among us? And the answer is, it is the responsibility of us all. It is not just my responsibility, though it is. It is not just the ministerial staff's responsibility. It is all of our responsibilities here, he says, to teach and admonish. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you. And then he goes on to say, teaching and admonishing one another. That is, it is our responsibility to teach the Word of God. That is not reserved for me. It is not reserved for your Sunday school teacher. It is the privilege of every believer in different settings, no doubt. That doesn't mean we're all going to take turns preaching. It doesn't mean that we all have to teach a Sunday school class. But it means in some way, all of us have a responsibility to teach one another in the body of Christ and admonish one another in the body of Christ with the Word of God. Teaching has to do with the positive presentation of the truth. Whereas admonishing, or some of your translations may say warning, has to do with the negative of not straying from that truth. We've been talking in general terms, really, for the last few weeks about this process of sanctification, growing more and more like Christ. That moment of salvation that we call justification, followed up by sanctification, whereby we are continually growing. And that takes place within the body of Christ as we, one another, teach and admonish through the Word of God dwelling within us. Which is another reason why it is so important that we are all involved actively in the body of Christ. It is why we cannot make ample spiritual progress separated from the body of Christ. We need each other. My sanctification is in part hinging upon you and vice versa because we come together as a body partnering with one another around the truths of God to teach and admonish one another. And Paul says we are to do this in part through singing. And this is what gets the bulk of the emphasis in this verse, though it really shouldn't be. It's one of the few verses in the New Testament that gives us a window into the worship of the early church. The emphasis here is letting the word of Christ control. That is, that's what dwells within us. But part of this is done, part of this teaching and admonishing is done through singing. And you say, well, I'm glad you brought that up. Because I know that there are always differences of opinion concerning this, so why don't you settle for us? Are we going to sing contemporary, or are we going to sing traditional? Is it going to be hymns, or is it going to be choruses? Are we going to have some blending of the two so that nobody's really happy about any of it? 
Well, that's really not what this verse is talking about, although you might look at it and think that. You might look at it and you say, the word hymn is right there. Therefore, we must sing hymns. I love hymns. But that word does not mean the same thing you think it means. In fact, a lot of, a lot of commentary work has been done on this second half of this verse, and there's still not consensus. Are all three of these words, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, are they synonymous? Is it just a way for Paul to string some words together meaning the same thing? Or is there some nuance here? Psalms perhaps meaning the Old Testament psalms, that is, they actually sang the word of God. And hymns being something else. And spiritual songs maybe perhaps referring to songs that are, that are sung in the spirit of God. We don't really know the answer to all of that, but I want you to understand that the important thing here is not what kind of songs we sing, but what the song says. That's what our focus ought to be. Remember, what are we doing here? We're teaching and admonishing one another with these songs. And therefore, we ought to be more focused on what a song says about God than the style of music that it is in. Because music is simply a means of conveying a message. And you know full well that sometimes we remember more of what was sung than what was said. That is, songs get into our heads, and sometimes we can't get them out. Even though sometimes you hear young people say, well, I don't listen to the words. You know, I just like the melody. That's not true, unless you can't understand the words, which is true in a lot of cases of songs I hear. But when we know the words, those words get into our minds, and ultimately what gets into our minds plays out in how we live our lives. And therefore, music has a peculiar ability to get into our thought life and change the way we think and then ultimately change the way we live. And that is why it is so significant that we make sure we are singing songs that are accurate according to the Word of God and accurate according to our doctrine as a church so that we sing or so that as we sing, we are teaching and admonishing. Whether that is done through praise choruses or hymns or a combination thereof, it is important that we sing truth. But then he also says it's important how we sing or the way we sing. Because he goes on to say we are to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Some of your translations may say the word grace there. But grace means thanksgiving and gratitude. The direction to which we sing is toward God. And our hearts are filled with gratitude to God so that we sing with gratefulness to God. I mean, you know that sometimes when you are singing outside of the church, there is joy, there is enthusiasm. Again, if I might go back to our UT illustration a moment ago, you know by heart and can sing heartedly Rocky Top. I've heard you do it way more times than I care to hear because it's a, it's a catchy fight song. Even I can acknowledge that. There are some schools that have fight songs that you're like, I don't even know what that's about. But UT has a very catchy fight song. And you hear it all the time. I remember when the first thing they taught me at the University of Georgia was what I was supposed to do when they kicked off at the football game. Literally, at orientation, they sat us down. First thing, they taught us what to do at the football game. That's, that's the priority there. Well, you learned the fight song a long ago. In fact, that, that's so ingrained. When we first moved here, Jacob was in elementary school. I don't remember if it was second or third grade, over here at Halls Elementary. And he came home one day. Now, teachers... We always taught our kids to respect their teachers and to do what they said, with this one exception. He came home from school one day, and he said, Dad, they're teaching us to sing Rocky Top 
in music class. And I said, son, you don't have to do it. You do not have to sing that song. He said, but the teacher says all of us have to participate. And I said, I'm telling you, you don't. And you can tell that teacher, you sit quietly in the class, don't disrupt, you don't have to sing. And if the teacher has a problem with that, you tell her to call me. Because you don't have to sing that song. They're trying to indoctrinate you into their team. But my point is, you sing that song with enthusiasm, you sing that song with joy, because you love your team. So when we come to church, now I realize the same is not, there's not a one-to-one correlation here. I'm not asking you to jump up and down when you sing. I'm not asking you to yell like we might at a stadium. But I am saying, if we sing our fight song with joy and enthusiasm, shouldn't we come to church with that same kind of attitude when we realize, even as we sung a moment ago, we will remember, when we remember all that God in Christ has done for us, shouldn't there be joy in our hearts as we sing? Shouldn't there be some sort of enthusiasm Again, not out of control, but some sort of enthusiasm because God has changed our lives and therefore we are thankful and we sing with joy. I mean, how we sing may say more about uh, what we believe than the words that we even sing because our hearts ought to be filled with thankfulness. So he says, let the peace of Christ control Let the word of Christ control. And thirdly, he says, we are to be controlled by the name of Christ, verse 17. Verse 17, in many ways, summarizes everything that we've looked at for the past couple of weeks. Because Paul says, not only now should we let the word of Christ dwell, and then we teach and admonish through song, but now he says, as a matter of fact, let everything you do be done in this manner. Whether it's a word or an action, which is a way to summarize all of life, do it all in the name of Jesus. This means that every aspect of our lives is to be done in this manner. No matter what task we are faced with, and oftentimes our tasks are mundane, they are routine. And yet even these things are to be done in the name of Christ, not with grumbling and complaining, Paul is calling us to acknowledge that everything we do in life should be done in a manner pleasing to God, which means there is no distinction between secular and sacred. And for those of you who were here this past Wednesday night, I sort of gave you a key to this because he says in verse 16, here's a picture of your worship, that the word of Christ dwells and then we sing And now he he expands upon that. Worship is not confined to the one hour a week we gather together on a Sunday morning. Worship is about all of our lives. And so he goes immediately from the corporate gathering of the church in worship in verse 16. And now he says, as a matter of fact, let everything you do be done in this manner. Somehow we've gotten the idea that there's a distinction, that we can compartmentalize our lives. God is in control of the spiritual dimensions, which is evidenced by our commitment and our coming on a Sunday morning. Or maybe we even acknowledge that Sunday is the Lord's day, but the rest of the week, well, that belongs to the world or that belongs to me. So tomorrow I have to go and face my demanding boss. Or when we go home this afternoon, we have to face our family or our children and our spouse. The religion stuff is fine when we gather on Sunday mornings. But what we need to see here is that it impacts every aspect of our lives. We don't check it at the door when we leave here in just a few moments. It is in to be, be into control of all things, which goes a long way in helping us answer those gray areas of our lives. What I mean by that is this. There are a lot of commands in Scripture that are very clear. 
is what you ought to do. This is what you ought not to do. So we're not arguing those. Those are very clear. And sometimes we wish God were clearer on some other things. That there are simply some aspects of our lives that, that there, is a thou, there is not a thou shalt or shalt not. And we have, to, we have to figure out what does God want us to do. And we wish there were more commands because then we could always know where we stand. Did I do this or did I not? But there's a lot of gray areas in life where we have to try to figure out what does God want me to do here. And this idea of letting everything in the name of Christ control us helps answer that. An example of that is our children. When your children are young, you have to tell them yes or no. I mean, that you have to tell them everything. But as they mature, hopefully, as they become mature adolescents, they come to know the heart of mom and dad. They come to know their parents enough that they know where their parents stand on certain things. So they don't always need a yes or a no. They can know the parent's heart. I know mom and dad would want me to do this or not do that without having a direct command. Now, that doesn't mean they always do it, of course. And so the Bible leaves some things vague, and we have to ask, how do we handle these circumstances? Well, we must make sure that everything is done in the name of Jesus. In other words, we come to know Jesus so much that even though there's not a direct command, we know his heart, and we know whether he would want us to do this or not, or how he would want us to react in a certain situation. And an honest evaluation of much of our lives in light of this would tell us what to do in various circumstances. However, a word of caution is in order here. If we don't know the Jesus of the Bible, then we can't possibly know whether our words or our actions are in accord with his name. Don't separate verses 16 and 17. If you are not allowing the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, then you're not prepared for verse 17, where it says, do everything in the name of Christ. Because only as we allow the word of Christ to dwell richly and control us, can we then know the Jesus of the Bible and know what he wants us to do. Because we live in a day and age when all kinds of things are done in the name of Jesus that are contrary to the very name of Jesus they are doing it in. So make this connection. You have to know the word of God to know what Jesus wants us to do or not do in his name. But these three things all go together. So the peace of Christ is to control us, the word of Christ is to control us, and the name of Christ is to control us. And the fact of the matter is some of us like, don't like any of that terminology. I don't like anything to control me. I mean, didn't we just celebrate July 4th? What's July 4th all about? Freedom. We have the freedom in our nation to do what we want to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me where to go. Nobody can tell me whether I should get a vaccine or not. That's my decision and my decision only. So you stand up there talking about someone controlling our lives. That just doesn't sit well with me. Well, God does control our lives. And it is for our good. God has given us these things for our benefit. This is not an angry God that wants to hinder your freedom and take away your joy. No, God puts these controls in place because he loves us and wants us to live a life pleasing to him because it is in that that we will find joy and happiness. Now, you still got your Bibles open. We're going to look back at all three verses now. Because I want you to see a common word in all three verses. Verse 15, the very last. And be thankful. Verse 16, towards the end. 
with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, towards the end, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All three verses, Paul adds the word thankfulness. We are not to live our lives under the control of God, whether it be his peace, his word, or his name, in a begrudging manner. We are not to be resentful or angry and say, well, this is what I have to do, I guess. No, he says we're to do all of this with thanksgiving because this is for our good. Because God loves us, he's put these controls in our lives for our benefit. So we are to submit to them with thankfulness in our hearts. Because he saved us and he's called us into a body together. And if you're here this morning and you've not been saved, he he may be calling you now to respond by faith. You can't be part of the body of Christ until you admit your need for a savior and repent of your sins and trust Christ. But then we do invite you to join this church. I know we've sort of got out of the habit because of COVID of of people coming forward. And that's that's a downside of COVID. We never meant to do that. So you might be here this morning and you don't have a church home or, or you're ready to change church homes for whatever reason. When we stand in just a moment to sing, we are inviting you not only to trust Christ, but we're inviting you to join this church, to become a part of this body so that you can join with us in the very things we've been talking about this morning. And so I'm going to have a word of prayer and then we're going to stand and sing and we're going to ask you to respond in those manners. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning that you are in control of our lives, even though sometimes we, we chafe at that. Your control is good for us. The idea that we control our own lives is, is just an illusion. A phone call sometimes or a, an event that's outside of our thinking reminds us that we're really not in control of our lives at all. But we are grateful that you are. And because you are, you've set these parameters, you've set these controls over our lives for our good. And I pray we would learn to submit to them in thankfulness for the very things you've given us. We pray now that in this time of invitation, a response, that those who need to be saved would be, that those who need to join this church would. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond. Mm -hmm.